Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. One thing I have asked of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to seek Him in His temple. Well, hello everyone, and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. Today, I am so excited to talk to you all about what I'm going to call modern-day monasticism which is really an effort to integrate all of our lives, the work, the eating, the rest, and the play, into an attitude of prayer and of offering our lives um, in thankfulness and in praise to God. And to chat with me about that today, I have my dear brother, Joel. Hello. Um, we are sitting in our Scottish living room. It's, it's a living room that happens to be in Scotland. <laughs> and we were talking about these things, and I thought, I'm... It would be excellent to have him as a guest because he has some particular knowledge, which I'm excited to have him share with you. The passage that I read at the opening of this episode is a prayer that I have prayed pretty much every morning for the better part of the last decade. It comes from the Celtic Daily Prayer, which is a prayer book that has um, morning and evening prayers and uh, readings for the entire kind of movement of the year, readings for every single day of the year, it kind of goes through the church year. And this was really kind of my first experience of integrating what we're going to talk about today, this kind of movement of having our whole lives be offered as a prayer up to God, um, and kind of sparked my interest uh, in this more generally, what it looks like to have these kind of more ancient rhythms that we all share together of prayer and of worship and of work. But something else that sparked my interest in wanting to do this particular podcast today has been something called the scriptorium. Now, I have talked about this um, on my mom's podcast, and uh, I posted about it a few weeks ago on my Instagram, and I got a lot of kind of interested comments and people who were curious about what it was and what I was doing and what it meant. Um, But the scriptorium that I experienced was a, I would say it was a study group on steroids, and we will tell you the the kind of history behind where that phrase came from, because it actually is rooted in monasticism. Um, but it was it was something that I encountered in Oxford that ran on Tuesdays through Thursdays, and it was uh, all those days where you would go at 9.30, there would be prayer, the morning prayer, you'd work for an hour and a half, you'd have coffee and tea, you'd work for an hour and a half, you'd have lunch, you'd work for an hour and a half, you'd have coffee and tea, you'd work for an hour and a half, and then you'd have either evensong or evening prayer. And at first, I remember seeing this study group, and um, Thomas, my brother-in-law, was like, you should check this out. And I was like, I don't know, that sounds kind of rigorous. Um, But I started attending, and it just absolutely revolutionized my own work. Uh, You know, with a PhD, Joel knows this too, as he is a year into a PhD, pretty much. Indeed. Um, That there's this kind of complaint you hear everywhere you go of um, everyone feels both like they lack structure in their lives and like they're lonely, and also like they need to get things done. And so in some ways, it really just met that need uh, for me. It met a need of working meaningfully, but having that work and that time be more meaningfully integrated into rhythms and patterns, both of community and of prayer. And I think that actually hits on a 
pretty big problem that we have in our world in general, which is that we live in a world where time is secular. By which I mean our experience of time, of the passage of time of different seasons, is really marked more by work and by school than it is by any sense of God's presence in the seasons. Would you agree with that, Joel, to some extent? I think that's right, yeah. Yeah, and so, and I realized that every time I've encountered something that has kind of sacralized time for me, that's taught me how to see my work time, my eating time, my prayer time, as being something that, where I could experience God and, and live in meaningful rhythms, has been something that kind of naturally fed my soul. And so, to my great delight, as I've done more research on this, um, kind of on accident in many ways, I've come to see that this idea of having rhythms of prayer and of work, of integrating our whole lives, um, including our work and prayer, as something that we can offer as praise to God, is actually something that's deeply rooted in the traditions of the church, of the Christian church. And so I thought that today I would give you a brief, a brief history of monasticism, um, kind of give you a picture of what it has offered in, in terms of legacy in our world and in our culture, and then talk about some ideas of ways in which we could kind of incorporate these rhythms and this kind of charism, which means the spirit of, or a calling to, um, in our own lives in meaningful ways. So now that I have blah, 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 uh, we're going to begin by going back in history to the beginning of monastic communities. Now, before we really get into monastic communities, we have to talk about the thing around which they were shaped, which was that, um, I'm getting ahead of myself here slightly, but I'll say that monastic communities existed to work and to pray. Um, and that was kind of it, that to work and to pray. But these began more fundamentally with a habit and a routine of prayer that began in the earliest of, of the Christian church, earliest times of the Christian church, um, which has to do with kind of what we would call daily offices. And Joel, who is doing his a lot of his PhD research um, has to do with some of these things, I'm going to ask him to kind of explain a little bit of the history of the rhythms of prayer that we find in the earliest days of the church. Sure, yeah. So uh, to begin with, that even just that word right there, the daily office, office comes from a word that means effectively duty. So it's the daily duty. It's sort of the daily, what, what we owe God in praise every day. And so that's that's where that idea of the office comes from. And it, it precedes the, the beginning of the church and of Christianity itself, actually. It comes from Jewish practice. It's from the Judaic practice of, of saying prayers and hymns multiple times a day to hallow the day, as it were, and to praise God throughout the day. And um, and, and one of the prayers that's said, or the beginning of, of, of each of these services, mm-hmm. Jewish practice, the saying of the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the, the Lord, Lord our God, God the, the Lord, Lord is one. one. And this gets adapted by Christians at the very earliest uh, parts of, of the development of the church. Uh, there's, a, there's a document that, that's a, it's a treatise on Christian practice and Christian prayer at the, in, the, in the first century called the Didache. And... Uh, and it's in Koine Greek, so it's it's sort of in the language of the developing church at the time, and uh, it encourages Christians to pray uh, the Lord's Prayer uh, three times a day, which is has been suggested that it's sort of like picking up mm-hmm. on the Shema, the twice a day uh, that it's encouraged uh, for the Shema to be prayed, uh, so that you you pray this sort of in the same kind of rhythm, and 
and it even has um, a benediction, which is hard to tell exactly when this came into being. Some people say it was added later into the gospel mm-hmm. accounts, but what we would say, the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever, uh, is not actually an original part of the Lord's Prayer. Mm-hmm. It's added later, and it's thought that it's like a benediction. It's like it's a liturgical benediction that's added to the okay. end of so each the of these ble- prayers. So the benediction is the blessing that you end a series of prayers with. Exactly, exactly. So there's already at the very beginning of, of the history of Christianity this sense uh, of praying multiple times a day. Rhythm is a prayer. Yeah, and, and so when we, when we hear a verse like pray without ceasing, this is kind of what it's getting at, and this is what it gets developed into. And uh, by the second century, which, w- which is when the uh, Alexandrian uh, fathers uh, began to emerge and began to write, there's already a sense that there are these two very important services in mm-hmm. the day. There's the morning service and there's the evening service. Mm-hmm. And other, uh, other hours of prayer emerge as well, uh, by the time of, of um, the 5th century, which we'll talk about in a minute with Benedict, seven, seven hours which are mm-hmm. prayed. But, but these two hours become really important, the morning prayer and the evening prayer. Vespers uh, is, is the evening prayer, Lauds is the morning prayer. Mm-hmm. And Vespers, uh, again, in tr- Jewish tradition, is considered to be the beginning of the liturgical day. And Vespers is evening. That's right, Vespers so, is evening. So the actual beginning of of a liturgical day, the beginning of when you pray is when the sun goes down. That's right. Which is like if you think about the celebration of Sabbath, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Jewish families will begin the Sabbath on Friday night. That's right. Not on Saturday morning. Exactly, exactly. So this is, you can see how much is adapted from Jewish practice, uh, liturgical practice into Christian liturgical practice. Which is also a fun thing to think about and I think actually helps me shift my mindset, which is that we think, what if we thought of beginning our day laying down to rest and then mm-hmm. going into work, which is a totally yeah. different... We think of ending our day yeah. exhausted and going to sleep. What if we thought of the beginning of our day as when we laid ourselves down to rest? Yeah, well, and this is, this is, this is why, um, this is why the, the, uh, the, the practice at this time, would, this is where the vigil developed, mm-hmm. the sense of keeping watch throughout the night hours. This is obviously drawn mm-hmm. from the Psalms or from other places, and it's this... My soul waits for you, Lord, even more than the watchmen wait for the morning. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, you, you see that psalm particularly hmm. getting used again and again and again and again uh, hmm. throughout Christian history in different liturgies. Oh, that's beautiful. It's funny, also, one of the other places I first encountered this kind of rhythm of evening and morning prayer was at Pusey House, where I, I attended the scriptorium. Mm-hmm. Um, but they have this beautiful service of Compline, which of course comes much later in yeah. different things. But Compline is... Um, they had it, I think it ended at like 10 p.m. at night. So yeah. I would go sometimes and it's candlelit and it always incorporated that verse. And I just remember thinking it was such, um, it was so naturally connected. And I want to ask you about this because I know you have a lot to say about this. It was so naturally connected to my experience of the dark coming and of the fears and the mm-hmm. the feeling of the actual physical light leaving. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that that was a part of this too, was seeing that we pray to God in in response to the world that we inhabit. That's absolutely right. And that yeah. the world that we inhabit kind of puts us in certain dispositions and reminds us of our dependence on God and our desire yes. for God and also how tied that was with um, with with Jesus being the sun or the, the morning star who's meant to rise yeah. someday. And so in some senses that we await the dawn, but that awaiting of the dawn is actually more fundamentally an awaiting for the for the resurrection of Christ. Well, I mean, so Vespers uh, begins to be a really sort of, we, we can see it in its fuller form by the 4th century in mm. Cappadocia. And uh, we partly can see this because of the fathers at the time, the Cappadocian mm. fathers, who I think you could probably speak to more. But I'll just, I'll just say that, you know, it's, 
it's it's in the in this time when there's this very profound sense of God's work in creation mm-hmm. through Jesus and and so what's what's actually done with vespers at that mm-hmm. point this the, uh, vespers uh, in the fourth century is the first time that we see what is the first surviving or extant hymn mm-hmm. in in mm-hmm. liturgy which is the fossilaire on the o gladsome light mm-hmm. and even by the title you can already maybe tell where this is going mm-hmm. but uh but the the liturgy that's adapted mm-hmm. uh, for it's it's not a it's not a new liturgy, mm-hmm. it's and it's not purely drawn from the Jewish tradition either. Uh, it's there's this practice called the Lucernarium, and the Lucernarium is something which is very very ubiquitous in, mm-hmm. uh, in all over the Mediterranean basin in antiquity. Mm-hmm. And effectively, what it is is that at even at evening, mm-hmm. uh, lamps would be lit, mm-hmm. and the the practice was uh, the in paganism and other religions as well would be to bless the lamp would be to say <laughs> to bless the light bless light yeah exactly so so this is actually adapted by Christians and what they do is they refocus uh, the the sort of telos or the mm-hmm. end point of that light mm-hmm. of that of the meaning of that light in Christ and mm-hmm. so when they bless the light what they're doing is blessing Christ. Right. And it's the, the light that shines the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. That's right. And imagine if every single night when you were going into your house, it makes me also think, it's funny, my only context for the lighting of lamps makes me think of, like, Victorian England, when you would have, right. you know, the people who'd go around and light the lamps. But imagine if every day when mm-hmm. you went into the darkness and you saw somebody lighting your lamps, you thought to yourself, ah, that is a, that is a sign to me of the light that shines the darkness, the darkness will not overcome it. Yeah, well, and, this and I is, should go pray. This is important for us to to think about because we don't have it in the way that most of history has. Yeah. You even say Victorian. I think it's good to point out that even in the Victorian era, there's a sort of sense of lighting lamps. Light is just kind of like automatic for us. We don't have yeah. to think about it. Lamps come on in the cities at a certain hour, yeah. so we're never really not in light. But for 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 anybody prior to about the nineteenth or eighteenth century, mm-hmm. the coming of of dusk means the coming of darkness. The coming of darkness means being uh, susceptible to evil, to so to, to dangers of the night, and and you know when mm-hmm. when uh, when a, a defenseless village, say in the in the, in yeah. the medieval the Middle Ages, would be attacked, it would probably be at night yeah. because nobody would be awake, and so this is why you see this idea get picked up multiple times in new liturgies, mm-hmm. uh, like for instance in the um, in in even song in mm-hmm. the Anglican tradition, evening prayer. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the collects or one of the sort of prayers which is always said no matter what mm-hmm. uh, is lighten our darkness we beseech thee O Lord and by thy great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night through the love of thy only son our Savior Jesus Christ so it's the sense of darkness brings yeah uh, darkness uh, in our time brings death and we mm-hmm. need light so we need God to keep visual with us in yeah. a certain sense as much as we keep visual with God and so it lets that's that actual experience of darkness which we all naturally used to all naturally experience uh, in the world, mm-hmm. remind us of our need for God and draw us into prayer. Right. I had a really um, stark and um, almost humorous, a little bit terrifying experience <laughs> of how little we are acquainted with darkness when I was in New York recently. Because when I went to visit Nathan mm. over the summer, I think I told you this, mm-hmm. um, but a, a, there was a power outage. And mm. so all of the Upper West Side lost power. And of course, I was like very tired at this point. I had come in, I'd been in Toronto, and I was still kind of jet lagging. And then I spent a few days there, and I got into New York, and I was still jet lagging. And I remember looking out my window and noticing that all of the all of the skyscrapers were dark. And I had this. I thought to myself, "Gosh, I didn't realize they turned them off at night." And then I thought, "That's really dumb, Joy. <laughs> they don't turn them off at night. Like that's the whole concept of a skyline Absolutely. is that we have light all the time." Well. And so it, 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 I mean, the, the city kind of descended into utter chaos. It was like 
quite absurd and I yeah I, I experienced chaos but it made me realize how custom we are even the concept of a skyline testifies to the fact that we're used to there being light all the time one reason one way we need the hours mm-hmm. because uh, we because have erased them with modern life we have and uh, this there's this great story from from uh, it's amazing in 1994 uh-huh. during the Northridge earthquake uh-huh. uh, or after the Northridge earthquake rather in California, mm-hmm. uh, there were vast portions of the city which just lost electricity. Yeah. And uh, in the weeks following mm-hmm. uh, the earthquake, uh, police started getting uh, phone calls of strange lights hovering over the city. And they eventually realized that people were seeing the Milky Way for the first time. And they had never seen it before. They didn't know what it wow. looked like. And but the, but the dying of the lights, of the artificial light, mm-hmm. allowed them to see this other light that wasn't mm-hmm. there before. And maybe that's something to, to think about in terms of the hours is that uh, part of what they did was that in the dying of the light and in the coming of darkness, mm. your prayers and your keeping vigil through the night allowed you to recognize the light of Christ mm. yeah. in, in, a, in a certain sense. This is all beautiful. Okay, so now I should I should uh, kick us into gear and move us forward Indeed. slightly historically. So, as Joel has set up for us, from the beginning of the church, one of the things that we see first is this development of rhythms of prayer and of worship in the Christian community. Um, and something that comes out of this then... Uh, is monasticism, which is, these were meant to be prayed by everyone, right? Mm-hmm. This wasn't like for special... It's the practice of the yeah, church. Yeah, it was the yeah. practice of the church. Of the it was the church, practice yeah. of lay people and priests and everyone. Yeah. Um, but then you have this kind of movement towards there being uh, particular communities devoted to prayer, service of others, and work and study. And of course, um, you all, I think anyone who's followed me for a while knows that I really love St. Macrina. And she's one of the people who's kind of famous for having helped start one of these. Um, And she, along with her brother, Peter, so they were from a wealthy family in Cappadocia. Um, Their their grandparents died in the Diocletian persecution, which was like the, or one of them did, um, which one of the biggest persecutions. But they were still kind of a wealthy family. And so Macrina convinced her mother that it was not suitable for them to live uh, their Christian lives in wealth and in opulence. And so they used their family estate and with her help, of her brother Peter, they developed these these kind of early monastic communities, which were, they um, shared everything in common. So she made all of the slaves, because it was in this time, a lot of people would have had slaves and servants or indentured servants. So she freed all the slaves, she allowed them to live with them if they wanted to, and they created an equality in the way they lived together so that her mother and her didn't have any different um, homes than they did. They, they had the shared, they shared possessions in common. And then they dedicated themselves to a rhythm of prayer and of study and devotion. And then they specifically cared for the communities around them. And this sounds very kind of basic, but this is really what monasticism was. was it was places where people were particularly dedicated um, to prayer, to service of others, and to, study, to studying um, scripture. And so Macrina had hers. Her brother Peter had his own. And then what happened was... Her brother, uh, the other brother, there's a whole bunch of them. There's like 10 of them, but we only know like four of their names. Um, Basil, who is one of the three Cappadocian fathers who um, helped articulate the Apostles' Creed, the language around um, Christ and the Holy Spirit specifically, I think. Um, I think I'm right about that. Um, pretty sure. Like, look it up. <laughs> Google it. Um, <laughs> anyway, so her brother Basil formulated the first kind of rule for monasticism that we have. So what he did was, he went around, um, he, he was he was a big political man, so he was a bishop and he was in charge of all these various 
um, kind of diocese. I don't think they would have been called that at that point. And what he did was he went to all these different monasteries, including Macrinas and, and Peter's, and he created a document that was, it really, he wasn't monastic. He was a bishop, but he went and created a document that was kind of summing up the rules of life that these people who had particularly dedicated their lives to God uh, in service and prayer and in worship. Um, and he kind of wrote that down and was like, if you want to start a monastery, these are kind of the rules. This is how you get, get to doing it. And this became the rubric for um, many other monasteries beginning. So if somebody thought to themselves, I want to start a monastery, I want to have a community that's specifically dedicated to prayer and work and worship, um, then I'm going to use Basil's kind of rule uh, and create this. So this was in the fourth century. Then two centuries later, uh, in the uh, in the sixth century, which been in the 500s, we have this very important figure called Benedict come around. And we have another brother-sister pairing. So before we had Peter and Macrina, and then of course Basil, who they're all siblings. Um, but then we have Scholastica and Benedict, who were twin siblings, um, who both had, they both shared a, a common kind of fervor and closeness to God. They both had a sense of wanting to devote their lives to God. And Benedict is famous for having um, created his own rule, which became kind of the foundation for most Western. So Basil's rule is actually what's still used in Greek Orthodox um, monasteries. Benedict's became the foundation for most of the Western monasteries we would think of. Um, and the thing that was that was kind of unique about Benedict's was that it was more, more quotidian. It was more humane and quotidian. So while in the East you would sometimes have, I forgot to mention St. Anthony, who of course is really the first monk, and there's wonderful stories about St. Anthony. I think he was Egyptian, if I'm remembering that correctly. And um, look at that up for me while I'm going, Joel. Uh, but he, he had the first monastery. But a lot of those early Eastern monks were kind of crazy. Like they wanted to live their lives in devoted devotion to prayer. So they would do things like sit on top of um, a stick while they would pray for a long, long time. People would be like, are they going to be okay? Are they going to eat? And they were okay, but they didn't eat. Um, but anyway, uh, so Benedict was like, okay, we need to figure out how to have a sustainable life of prayer. So he wrote this rule. Um, you can look it up. I'll include links to this in my uh, show notes. Um, but the thing that it is famous for, his kind of motto was ora et labora. For some reason, <laughs> I have a hard time saying that. Um, and which means to pray and work. And the things that were unique about it were it was humane. So part of what he talked about was uh, this is how we're going to make sure that all of the monks and nuns eat enough. They will have meals together. And his whole kind of attitude was both, um, was really communal. It was about how do we live, how do we work and pray together? And so he sets out rules for the times they'll eat together, the times that they'll pray together. He also is a really big believer in kind of, you know, we have the phrase, uh, idle hands are the devil's handiwork. Uh, and he really believed this. So he set people to working. So a lot of what you see in monasticism, you'll, there'll be monasteries who are famous for making cheese or beer or whatever, because they work, uh, they, they pray and they devote their lives to worship, but then they've got to keep their hands busy somehow. So the devil doesn't get around. So they make some cheese or beer. Um, but this is generally true. He had them kind of taking care of gardens, but also one of the central things that they did in these monasteries um, was, took place in dun, 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 the, the scriptorium. scriptorium. So the scriptorium was a specific kind of uh, room within the monasteries where monks would go and scribes would go and write out um, the Vulgate. So 
the, the Latin Bible, uh, the works of the fathers, so works of people like Basil and Gregory of Nyssa and all these things. Um, and they would also copy out, he, he specifically had people preserve the great classics of more pagan literature. So when we think of um, Plato and Aristotle and um, a lot of the, you know, you can thank monasticism and you could thank scriptoriums in particular um, because part of the role of them was to go and just copy these out in the scriptorium um, so that then they could send them to other churches, to other monasteries, and to preserve these. And so this is kind of some of the work that he did. But at the heart of it, this the whole kind of whole trajectory of this was to have a whole life uh, that was offered to God in prayer. And that that life involved rhythms of prayer and worship together, that it involved work, but that work was not seen as somehow separate from the life of prayer. Mm-hmm. It was in the warp and woof and the rhythms of prayer. And then that also, in addition to prayer and work, you also have community and feasting and togetherness. And um, and so that's kind of the rule of St. Benedict. Now what's also cool is that Scholastica started the ladies version of the Benedictine uh, monasteries. And one of my favorite stories about Scholastica, which kind of doesn't have to do with this, but I'm gonna tell it anyway, is that at one point, um, Benedict came to visit her, so they would have a time every year where they would meet together for a particular day. I feel like this is something we would do, Joel, although I hope mm. you wouldn't be as rude as Benedict was in this case. <laughs> they would have a year, they would have time every year where they would meet together and they would um, talk about what they had been learning in scripture and what they'd been learning throughout the year. And one time, Benedict came to visit Scholastica and she kind of had a feeling that her life was nearing its end. And so she was like, you should stay for dinner. And he was like, nah, I've got to get back to my monastery. And she um, she immediately prayed, and a huge storm came up, and mm-hmm. he was like, what did you do? And she was like, well, I asked you to stay, um, and you didn't want to. Um, why don't you try now? <laughs> <laughs> that, it literally, I mean, it's not quite like that, but that's kind of almost exactly what the Latin is. Yeah, so you're yeah. just like, why don't you try going now? And in my mind, this is a very like Elsa in Frozen moment. Yes, <laughs> you know, yes. She manages to whip up a storm yeah. and rain. And for this reason, Scholastica is the um, patron saint of rainstorms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I love also that it was this uh, life of prayer and of work and of community that develops from siblings. Yeah. And I like yeah, that. Yeah, it seems to be a, a recurring thing. Yeah, because you have Macrina and Peter and then you have... Scholastica and Benedict. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and so they provide kind of the foundation for monasticism in the West. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a, a great thing I just read from the Holy Mountain. On the Holy Mountain, I can never, I can never remember the <laughs> preposition that goes the Holy Mountain yeah. um, by William Dalrymple over the summer. It was really wonderful. It's a travel book where he goes through Lebanon and Turkey and all these different places in the 90s visiting all these monasteries. And the thing that he shares in common ever he goes is these daily offices, mm. morning and evening prayer, that whether he is in Egypt or Lebanon or yeah. Turkey, these offices are kind of the heart. They're the beating heart of the work that the monastery does. Yeah. And everywhere you go, you share these common rhythms. And I think it really highlights the the Catholicity in its, in its proper sense, right. which is the universality of the church. Yeah. That, that this at the beginning of the church really was what made what Christians shared in common, which was a common life of worship. Yeah. A common sanctifying of their ordinary days through prayer to God. I think it was, yeah, it's sort of the sense that you, that, that Christians as, as a whole, the Christian community, in, in humanity in, mm-hmm. in, in that sense, in the broader sense, in the mm-hmm. universal sense, that it's meant to consecrate the world uh, to God, consecrate the entirety of the world to God, and in turn, 
sort of through the world and into the universe make their whole prayer something which consecrates the the world around them and the community within it yeah as, and, a, as a prayer to god and joel and i were talking too about how i think sometimes when people start talking about monastic rhythms or prayer or even liturgy they act as though it's like a nice formational tool yeah right yeah, that it's yeah. like we do this thing because it'll be good for us for, us. for me yeah yeah but that's really not the direction of that's monasticism. Right. That's right. There's but, more of a sense that, like, well, yeah, it's it's that there that prayer and praise is what we're made for. So that's yeah. the that's the first thing. So, but also that we do all these things to offer everything in our lives as a as a offering of worship to God. That's right. That's right. And and it it doesn't deny uh, the fact that that is what we were made for. So mm-hmm. in that sense, because it's what we're made for, it is what will give us the and highest it is good for us. goodness. Yeah, but but that's not the end. But it's not its end. That's that's uh, at best sort of a, a a side aspect. You know, icing yeah. on the cake. Yes, and so um, yeah, and so really the direction of this when they prayed for their work when they did their scriptoriumness. That's definitely not the Latin for that. Um, <laughs> There wasn't a sense of prayer being the nice thing between. It was that prayer was the root, the the seed out of which everything else grew and right. was offered to God. So I hope this is giving you a sense of monasticism, which was really at its heart based around these rhythms of worship um, that were then integrated to become kind of the pinpoints of rhythms of worship uh, out of which work and community developed and was able to be offered to God. A few things we have to thank monasticism for in the West and the East, really everywhere. <laughs> um, first of all is... We have preserved texts like nobody's mm-hmm. business. You can right. thank medieval monks and, frankly, Byzantine monks um, <laughs> for spending days and days on end just copying things That's out. Right. Uh, monasticism is, in many ways, what preserved. There's a great um, little book called How the Irish Preserved What... Uh, how the Irish Saved Civilization. Yeah, How the Irish Saved Civilization. It talks about how the Irish monks who were... Uh, I remember talking to this Scottish guy. He said, you know, it's remarkable that they didn't come up with the idea of a warrior monk. Um, in that the Irish monks were just constantly getting like decimated absolutely all yeah, the time yeah, yeah. the the Vikings were always just running around sacking yeah monasteries um, but their response as I have talked about in numerous podcasts was just to keep on copying out these things keep yeah. on making illuminated manuscripts um, keep on copying the Bible the church fathers um, even ancient classical texts and mm-hmm. because of that we have we have the literature that we have we today. have access to it yeah. yeah so thank you monasteries for devoting your rhythms of work in such a way that we have yeah. preserved the literary classics yeah. of generations for us. That's right. Second of all, uh, we have to think for the, this kind of new concept of, it, it, it sounds so clinical to call it a social security net, but hmm. there was this sense in which monasticism brought this idea of there being a central place out of which we could care for the poor and people mm-hmm. in need. Um, so there is, they really became relied upon to be a source of care for the poor in the areas around them. And this was particularly remarkable, like with Macrina, yeah. uh, because there, uh, there was, there may have been ways to take care of the poor, but there, there wasn't this sense of, I should reach from me to other people. There was a sense almost in which if you were poor, you're kind of like, bummer, you deserve to be poor. Right. Whereas Macrina with her religious community, reached out to people. There was a field in which um, people would go and de- deposit unwanted children, unwanted mm. babies, mm. Uh, whether they were because they were an embarrassment to the family, because it was an illegitimate child, or because people didn't have money. And part of what Macrina used her community for was that she would go and she would save the babies and she would raise them. And so when she dies, there's this beautiful account of everyone coming, of like dozens of of young girls that she had saved and raised coming to her her funeral and wailing so loudly that you know 
everyone was very uh, sad because she used this religious community as a way to care for the poor. Yeah, and this becomes such an important part of the monastic uh, charism, as you mm -hmm. say, that uh, in moments where there even needs to be sort of a uh, an, a, a, a reformation yeah. or a reforming of these monastic sensibilities. For instance, in the, at the beginning of the 13th century, mm -hmm. you see uh, the mendicant orders pop up, yep. uh, Franciscan uh, monast monasticism yep. and uh, um, Dominican monasticism, mm -hmm. which are built around the idea of taking a vow of poverty, of yep. sort of rejecting the ways of the world, yep. not just for the sake of the poor, mm -hmm. but making oneself poor, poor for yeah. the sake of, of the world. And for the sake of Christ. That's right. And of course... I think with all of these things, they don't come out of nowhere. They came out of the heart of Christ. They came out of the teachings of Christ and of trying of, of the early Christian attitude of Christ being king over everything and how do we orient our lives because of that. But monasticism, I think you do more reading on this, but it became this kind of way of thinking about the community being responsible for mm. those who couldn't help themselves. Yeah. So thanks for that monasticism. <laughs> also, we can thank you um, for your spiritual legacy. We, a lot of the texts that we love best, um, whether it is Teresa of Avila or the texts of the Church Fathers come out of these places of monasticism. Also a pretty cool thing is uh, that I like to think about sometimes is that there are particular orders who exist to pray for people who cannot pray for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so you have someone like the Carmelites who live um, their, they, they live um, what's the word I want? Enclosed, um, oh, cloistered. Oh, yeah. Is that is that yeah, cloistered? Yeah. yeah. Um, so they live entirely kind of private lives. That's right. But their goal is that they pray every day for the rest of the world, mm -hmm. knowing that not everyone can pray for themselves. Yes. And I love this picture that I think we we should all adopt in some sense of I'm not just responsible for me and my family. I'm responsible to pray for the whole world, because the whole world is meant to be offered as a, as a that's right service of worship to God. So that's monasticism in general. And the amazing thing about this, of course, is that we, we sometimes think of a word like monastic as an, an old word, and it mm -hmm. is an old word. And, and so we sometimes attribute it to being an ancient practice that's no longer really relevant. But the thing mm -hmm. is, as you were just saying about the Carmelites, this is present today. This is still mm -hmm. active in some ways. You're, you're seeing an uptick in people taking up these vocations and going into mm -hmm. to monasteries. It beca it's actually becoming a, a much more popular... Yes. More women than in many, many years previously became nuns last year in the UK. Yeah. yeah in this aggressively secular country. That's right. That's right. And and I think this is because monasticism is a it is a, a heritage of the church which is renewed and restored in every generation. And uh, there's an interesting um, uh, bit in a... Uh, so Vatican II was, was a council uh, in the Catholic Church in the... Mm -hmm. Uh, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, trying to rethink how do we engage with the gospel and do this through our liturgical practice and through the, the worship of the church and through our personal practice and all these sorts of things. And they released a number of documents which reformed a lot of the way that the Catholic Church thought about this. Mm -hmm. And one of those documents um, is a document that talks about liturgical reform in particular. It's called uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. And uh, in the section where it deals with the divine office, where it deals with um, with the way that this is uh, kind of thought about in the uh, in the 20th century and now coming into the 21st century, it says this, and I think you'll recognize, even as it's trying to sort of nuance some ways that were practiced in, in the early part of the 20th century, mm -hmm. it still sounds very, very much like what you said about the Benedictine worship at the very, very beginning. By tradition, going back to early Christian times, the divine office is devised so that the whole course of the day and night is made holy by the praises of God. Therefore, when this wonderful song of praise is rightly performed by priests and others who are deputed for this purpose by the church's ordinance, 
or by the faithful praying together with the priest in the approved form, then it is truly the voice of the bride addressed to her bridegroom. It is the very prayer which Christ himself, together with his body, addresses to the Father. So this is something which mm. we are given to think about today. It is, it's a gift for us to, to engage with and to grapple with and say, well, mm. what, is, what is monasticism in today's world? Yes, and I, I had one other thought that came to me while you were saying that. I think that in our modern world, we think often about monks as very solitary people who sit in their cells. And of course, that was an element of monasticism. But I think that what is much more fundamental to monasticism than um, being solitary is actually community. Uh, Absolutely. Much more fundamental to it is an attitude of a common and shared vocation yeah. of work and of prayer and of worship and a community together. Yeah. yeah. And I think that both of those things together are things that we really feel a need for in our world. And I think is why whenever I encountered anything that was like it, I my soul just kind of naturally responded to it. Because we long um, both for rhythms which dedicate our whole life in the evening and in the morning, our work, yeah. our, our play, our rest to God. And we also, things that sacralize time. I love that it said it makes holy this mm, time. Mm. But we also long for a sense of shared vocation with each other. That's right. That's right. And monasticism almost becomes a, a maybe it's another, actually an additional charism of monasticism is that it preserves what it looks like to be in fellowship, yes. what it looks like, not just, I mean, we talk obviously about how this is something for the whole church and that mm -hmm. we are drawn together as the body of Christ. But sometimes we need examples of that. And you see these books that mm -hmm. pop up or these, these works, you know, mm -hmm. Brother Lawrence's The Practice of the Presence mm -hmm. of Prayer, where he's struggling to understand, how do I do this? How yeah. do I engage with this? And he's hearing from his brother monks and mm -hmm. and working uh, to, to become humbler and, and doing just the basic tasks mm -hmm. of being in community. And then you see people even in, uh, in the, uh, this is certainly not something which is exclusive to Catholicism. You see people like Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes mm -hmm. his book, um, our life together and mm -hmm. that's about living together it looks it sounds very monastic if you read it well and honestly probably some of the best preservers of um uh, dare i say it but of the morning and evening prayer really are anglicans that's right that's absolutely because we true. have um we have even song mm -hmm. uh which is a that's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, it, um, it preserves. I mean, Anglicanism actually returned. It, it it took a lot of this, a lot of the hours, and sort of uh, pared them down to the two hours, the morning and evening prayer, and it's yeah. become very, very, very central to yeah. the worship of of the English Church after the Reformation. Yeah. So, this then brings us to this question, which is, how can we begin to kind of reclaim this and readopt this attitude of worship in our own lives? And I kind of have two main ideas for you, and they're really very simple. One of them is that I would encourage you to start instituting a practice of daily prayer into your life. Start praying the hours, start praying in the morning and in the evening. And there's some really simple kind of uh, resources you can, you can use to do this. So one of them would be the one that I opened with, which is the Celtic daily prayer. That has morning, midday, and evening prayers. You can pray every day with passages of scripture to read and also has all the feast days and things in there. Another good resource for this would honestly be the Book of Common Prayer, which is uh, written by Thomas Cranmer. It's kind of the uh, the foundation of Anglicanism. Mm -hmm. uh, then you've also got um, breveries. There's there's a whole bunch of different kind of options you could you could choose to integrate this attitude of praying in the morning and in the evening and dedicating your day to God. It has been something that has really been, it is a small thing, um, but it really does make a significant difference in my life. So that's one way that you could introduce this into your life. A second way would be to institute something like a scriptorium in your own life. I had several people ask me, do you think I could do this? 
Um, what you described, which uh, again, to reiterate, is really just a day of working, praying, and eating together. So ours runs from 9.30 until 5.30. We get there, we do a prayer together, um, we do a small reading of some kind of text. We've been reading Learning in Wartime by, um, by C.S. Lewis because we're all scholars and it kind of, and it's all about why does learning, what is research and what do these things matter in a world that feels like it's falling apart. So we've been reading that together. And then we all tell each other what our goals are for the day. We pray, we work for an hour and a half, we eat, we work for an hour and a half, we eat again, we work for an hour and a half, we eat, we work for an hour and a half. Um, and then we end the day in prayer. And that's actually, it's not just me doing the prayer, it's actually tied into the prayers of my church. So um, so they can actually go to the sanctuary and do morning, evening prayer. But even if you didn't do that, um, if you just began and ended the day with the Celtic daily prayer, um, I think that'd be a wonderful thing to do. So yes, I do think that you could absolutely do this with a friend, even if it was just once a month. Invite a few friends and say, I want to focus together if there's work you have to do, whether that is um, if you're if you're in grad school and you're working together on that, or if you are um, a mom and you want to work in a creative project, but you want to work in it with friends, or if you want to even use this as a rubric for kind of a, a spiritual retreat, I think this is very much something that you could institute together. Use something like one of these resources for morning and evening prayer. Um, have set times where you eat together and set times where you work together. And for what it's worth, if you are really curious about this and excited by this notion and you want to know what it really looks like in the actual formal tradition of monasticism, mm -hmm. the amazing thing is that probably within a hundred miles or less from where you live, there is likely a working monastery that you can visit, that you can spend uh, time mm -hmm. at and, and even pray the office with um, the residents at that yeah. monastery. Yeah, I um, there is a monastery in Colorado Springs just outside of it yeah. uh, where I know the church numerous churches I know actually kind of ask them to let them lead retreats there and they yep, often do absolutely. you can go you can spend a day yep, you can pray yep, there yeah there's a monastery very it's a actually a, a medieval monastery uh, just north of where we are here in Scotland uh, that yeah. uh, remains in use today yeah so those are some ways that I would think about kind of in incorporating this attitude into your life of having the rhythms of your life be driven by more than just work and busyness and uh, the never-ending light of the modern age, but incorporating these rhythms of prayer that help you begin to see your work, your community, your eating, and your life as something that you can offer to God in prayer. So Absolutely. with that, I think I will end today with the blessing at the end of morning prayer, <laughs> which I'm reading, but I probably could recite it because I've said it so many times that it is <laughs> deep in my heart. I hope that this uh, podcast has done you well. And also, I want to take this moment before I leave to say, Joel, a lot of what you shared with us today has been incorporated into your PhD, right? That's yes, a lot that's of right. what you're and, studying. And is being incorporated, yeah. And Joel is also working specifically on how music played in that. That's right, um, that's right. Hymns and singing the Psalms and all these sorts of things. Yeah, and I just, every time I talk with Joel, I, I learn and I have a deeper appreciation for the richness of the tradition of Christianity, that we have this beautiful heritage of thousands of years of prayer and of orienting ourselves towards God. Uh, and Joel's great. Also, he's a musician. <laughs> also, the reason I'm saying this is that he's doing a PhD, as am I, and it is a large undertaking. Um, and it's also a large 
financial undertaking. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, Joel has a Patreon, like I do, and I'm I am trying to encourage people to go to his side. He's already got a, a, quite a number of supporters. But let me take this moment to say that um, support him and his work. It is it is ministry. It is worth it, and I think it will really en- enrich the church. And so um, your Patreon is just patreon.com yep, patreon.com forward slash joel clarkson i'm doing um i'm providing new music monthly or new arrangements monthly i'm doing music videos i'm doing essays and i love uh when people reach out to me through patreon i get to contact them and engage in conversations so if you become a patreon member make sure to send me a note in, in my patreon portal i'll definitely respond for sure absolutely but um, it's really worth it also i think you all should know this but joel is a composer i say this every time you're on um and the opening uh passage of music which is for the beauty of the earth is from his album hymns for the life giving home yeah so joel does a lot of beautiful stuff go find his music buy his music but also support his patreon because his work and his ministry is something that i think is worthwhile and deserves support so there's my random plug for Joel. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't tell him I was going to do that. No, I love it. I'm so grateful. <laughs> um, but anyway, let me end today with this prayer, which is the blessing or the benediction from the daily office of morning prayer from Celtic Daily Prayer. May the peace of the Lord Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to Speaking with Joy. If you enjoyed today's episode, please go rate and review this podcast on iTunes and subscribe to make sure that you don't miss a single episode. 